We will be taking a brief hiatus today from Isaiah's prophecy to consider another matter. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to instead to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 in particular, please. And we'll be reading there from the third verse, Exodus chapter 20. In the evening services, we've been making our way through the book of Exodus. And the past several studies have been given to the Ten Commandments. We've, um, we've been making some specific applications of each of those particular laws. And uh, I suppose that, uh, you know, for those of you who have been uh, in those evening services, this morning's sermon may seem to you like an extension of sorts of uh, that evening series. But uh, this gives us yet another opportunity to see how pervasive is the law of God taking hold of every aspect of life in creation, starting, of course, with the very heart. And that's one thing we've remarked over these several Sunday evenings, how the law begins, goes straight to the heart. And, of course, it should, for it is from the heart that all the issues of life flow. Let's pray. And so, our Father, we ask that you will take your law now and apply it. Apply it to your people and give us wisdom, Father, and your Spirit's presence now to hear your voice and when we leave this place to heed it and to obey it, that your law more and more will rule, even as... um, Uh, Dr. Long just prayed a few moments ago, and we pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 20, beginning, or rather, verse 3, and only verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. As you know, the uh, uh, title, Roe versus Wade, was the name given to the court case that was decided by our own United States Supreme Court on January 22, 1973, 37 years ago, last Friday. In its findings, the court declared and uh, uh, constitutionally defensible the killing of human beings in all stages of fetal development in their own mother's Wombs. And since that day, the toll has risen to over 50 million lives lost. 50 million American lives. Let me put that into some perspective for you. Over the past nearly two weeks, we have been grieved, and rightly so, over the truly tragic loss of human life that has taken place in Haiti in connection with the earthquake there. We find it absolutely astounding to hear that the death toll now stands minimally at 100,000 people. That is horrific. But in order to equal the number of lives that have been destroyed by abortion in America since 1973, it would take 500 
such catastrophes. In America alone, that many lives have been lost since 1973. Rightly, we are sending money and aid and help and doctors and life-saving equipment to our island neighbor. But I want you to imagine an earthquake at which Owensboro is the epicenter. And starting right here in Owensboro and going out in a, in a circle, you must wipe out the entire populations now, not just portions of the population, mind you, but the entire populations of Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and Missouri and Iowa and Tennessee to equal the number of Americans alone who have died since abortion was legalized. Some of you may vaguely remember the last time I said something like that to you a few years ago. I want you to know that since then I had to go back and add Iowa to that list. The entire state of Iowa at least would have to have been wiped out in the past few years to equal the number who have died in the U.S. alone from abortion in the past few years. You've seen the horrific images from Haiti. Well, just imagine getting in your car and driving from Cincinnati to Sioux City and then from Chicago to Chattanooga not seeing a single living soul. Or, maybe more accurately, imagine the same strewn in corpses. This is what we've done in this land by abortion. Maybe I can put it into a little bit more local perspective for you. I didn't notice until this morning. I should have long ago. But that on the, the green insert in our bulletins, it says that uh, of the nearly one million unborn children who have died by abortion every year in 2008, 64 of these were Owensboroans. Now imagine if a bus loaded with school children, 64 of them, were to violently explode and every life be lost. What an outpouring of grief that would be. And that is what happened, except for the bus in Owensboro to 64 people. They died violently in the womb. You've, you can all remember, though we can hardly believe it was over eight years ago, when the former governor of New York, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, described the loss of nearly 3,000 in the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2000 
One, described the death of nearly 3,000 as, quote, more than we could bear. 17,000 airplanes would have to crash into 17,000 buildings in America of like proportion. The number of the Americans who have died at our very own hands on a daily basis, every single day, more than that many die in our nation. September 11 happens every day in America, only it doesn't make the headlines. More people have died in America from abortion last year than died in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and World Wars I and II and the Korean War and the Vietnam War and the Gulf Wars combined. Now, after all of that, some of you may be thinking, we've read the wrong verse this morning. You know, when we're thinking that uh, rather than verse 3, we should have read verse 13, which reads, you shall not murder. And indeed, that commandment is clearly applicable here, and rightly we have uh, prayed it this morning. It refers especially to the deliberate and premeditated and particularly unjust taking of human life and abortions. Abortion fits all of those criteria. But while I was considering the nature of abortion and what sort of thinking, what sort of mindset must lie behind this bloodshed, it was not the sixth commandment concerning murder, but the first concerning allegiance to God and the worship of him alone that comes to mind. Why? Because the behavior of a person or of a nation, for that matter, is never freestanding. It always has everything to do with one's theology, one's understanding of God. And everyone has a theology. Everyone does. You know, atheists have a theology. Everyone has. Because everyone has, as Pascal called it many years ago, has in his or her heart a God-shaped vacuum, which demands to be filled with one God or another. And in accord with the nature of the God that fills one's heart, that person's moral convictions and behavior is shaped and governed. As a person's God goes, so goes he or she. Now, some vocal Americans have have said that we as a nation, America, must have no God, and that God must be struck from our national consciousness and from our schools and from the courtroom and the currency even, that you carry in your pocket. And to a certain extent, they've gained some ground. But no matter how loudly men protest that they will have no God, in matter of fact, all men are governed by a God. All men. In the center of every human heart and life, there is a throne, and someone or something will always sit on that throne and govern that heart and that life in its thoughts and its deeds. They will either be the God of Scripture, the only one true God, or some other God. But all men, inescapably religious as we are by our very nature, this is how we have been made, it is inevitable that something or someone will fill that God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. So what we're all witnessing now All that we have described this morning runs much deeper than any Supreme Court decision or abortionist's office or scalpel. The problem is not primarily that we are murdering 
our own offspring. Though that most certainly is a problem and a devastating sin. The real problem is that we've put other gods before the one true living and triune God. And once having broken the first commandment to have no other gods before him, the rest simply fall right in line. You know, put other gods before or in the place of the one true God, and then idolatry and the taking of God's name in vain and the desecration of the Sabbath day and dishonor for parents and authority, indeed murder and adultery and stealing and lying and coveting, they all follow. The fact that the last nine commandments are regularly and rigorously broken today is only the telltale sign that the first commandment has long been left behind. And this, dear Christians, was happening long before Roe versus Wayne. Long before that court decision. Indeed, over a hundred years ago, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink wrote this about the conflict that was being visited on the world at the dawn of the 20th century. He wrote, it is well known that at present this conflict is no longer confined to one or another article of our Christian confession, to the authority of scripture or tradition, to justification or election, and not even any longer to the deity of Christ or the personality of the Holy Spirit. But in the spiritual conflict, which is now waging in every part of the civilized world, the points at issue more and more are the principles of Christianity itself. And they're very fundamentals of all religion and all morality. This conflict extends the whole length of the line. More serious and fiercer than ever before, the conflict is between the old and new world view. Friends, that Herman Bavink could make that observation about the Western world a hundred years ago confirms that the problem is not just Roe versus Wade. It strikes much deeper. It strikes to the heart and to the allegiance of the heart. The popular answer then to that question, who will have possession of the throne of man's heart, is more and more man himself. Man plants his flag the banner of humanism in his own heart and teaches others to do the same. Humanism is the religion that has taken the throne uh, not only of our own government uh, system at the highest levels, but right down to the local classroom. It is taught and propounded. In humanism, man is the ultimate arbiter of truth. Decisions and laws and actions are established, carried out, not for the sake of God's glory, not in obedience to God's commandments, but for the sake of man's glory and governed by man's pleasure, according to his own man-made rules. Well... There's nothing new under the sun, is there? This is virtually as old as history itself. And witness the conversation in the Garden of Eden. The serpent hisses to Eve, If you eat of it, you shall be like God. 
from the very entrance of sin into the world, man has been trying desperately to dethrone God and to crown himself ruler over all. Eve was the very first humanist, you see. And the temptation was not so much for a piece of fruit as it was for power. As Herbert Schlossberg so astutely observes, quote, what was to be fed was her pride, and what would grow was her appetite for self-worship. The same human propensity for self-worship is behind the incessant biblical injunctions against pride. Tyre was struck down because, Ezekiel said, your heart is proud and you have said, I am God. Habakkuk wrote of guilty men whose own might is their God. The judgment on the Tower of Babel was evidently of the same order. Those who wished to make the name for themselves built their tower having its top in the heavens, a declaration of independence from God. Surveying civilizations across the whole span of history, Toynbee concluded that self-worship was the paramount religion of mankind, although its guises are numerous and diverse. You know, is that not what this whole blood battle over abortion is really about? Just beneath the question, who shall live and who shall die, lies the much more fundamental and important one, who shall rule and who shall decide? Humanism says man. Man shall rule, man shall decide. So man has, hasn't he? And tens of millions have been crushed at the very headwaters of their lives under the feet of man's throne. Appeal is made not to God's law, but to man's law and fleeting opinions based on what serves them and their fickle feelings most. The director of an abortion clinic online counsels women who are considering abortion with a, question, a list of questions like these. She begins, is abortion murder? To which she responds, people who are against abortion often say it is murder. Just because they call abortion murder doesn't mean that it is. When someone calls abortion murder, it may mean that they don't believe it could ever be right. They may feel strongly that their experience of the world is not just right, but the only way for anyone to feel. These people don't understand that each person is capable and has a responsibility to make choices out of their own values and experience. They would like to live in a world where everyone must think and act as they say. Our society states that each person can decide about abortion based on their own moral and ethical values, end quote. A little further down, she asks another question. What do you feel when you use the word murder? 
And again, she supplies the answer. Each woman must decide based on her experience and values when choosing abortion, whether she is choosing murder. In another section, she discusses the question of personhood. She asks, what is your definition of personhood? When do you think a fetus becomes a person? We heard something of that in a prayer just a few minutes ago. And here is the guidance she gives to women seeking the answer to that question. Some women believe that at about five months, when they feel the fetus move, it becomes a person. Others think that around seven and a half months, with further brain development, it becomes a person. Some women feel it is a person when they find out they're pregnant. Some not until the baby is born. There are many different ways to look at the question of fetal life and personhood, and they are all based on personal values and experiences. What makes a person for you? End quote. Oh, friends, that is sheer humanism. It is a lot of other things too, but it is sheer humanism because far from the triune God ruling and directing in the matter, her feelings must make the decision about whether or not the life inside her is even a person. Continuing to worship at the feet of humanism's God, which is of course man and soon man is the arbiter of life and personhood, not only of those who are still in the womb, and man becomes the arbiter of whether his newborn neighbor is really a person or his black neighbor or his white neighbor or his Jewish neighbor or his retarded neighbor or his elderly neighbor or the neighbor that just plain gets in the way. Witness Terry Shivo. Humanism, at its purest, is just that ruthless, that terrifying, and that deadly, because it worships and finds its laws, not in the throne of the one true and, by the way, benevolent God, but in the feelings and in the thoughts of men. Listen to this chilling paragraph from the Second Humanist uh, Manifesto, written, by the way, in 1973, the same year as Roe v. Wade was delivered from our high court. We have virtually conquered the planet, explored the moon, Overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution. You think about that for a minute. And cultural development unlock vast new powers 
and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. 37 years later, are we really on the way to achieving that abundant and meaningful life for all following that philosophy? 50 million Americans whose lives were taken in the womb or just barely out of it had they voices today would have something to say about that. Oh, we've unlocked vast new powers. We certainly have. We are now experimenting on human beings. We are now experimenting on human beings, not only with our government's blessing, but with its funding. And where things go, as long as man remains on the throne of his own heart, we can only imagine in our worst nightmares. And that is where you come in, Christian. God has revealed to you his law and his gospel. He's made known to you that there is a redeemer, that there is a king, a capital K king, the king, the only king who can satisfactorily fill that throne vacuum in every human heart. And now is the time of all times for you to proclaim him. Today is the day of salvation. Like never before, our blood-saturated land must hear the truth of God's word from those who will be bold enough and faithful enough to proclaim it to neighbors, to friends, to family, in church, in home, in neighborhood. The battle for hearts is on. Are you engaged in it, Christian? Over half a century ago, five young missionaries who became missionary martyrs took the gospel to a blood-saturated culture too. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley touched down in a jungle uh, river sandbar and made face-to-face -face contact with the Waodani a culture so bloodthirsty that it had almost driven itself into extinction. You know the story, you've read it, you've heard it from this pulpit, maybe you've even seen that movie that came out a few years ago, how the blood of those five men shed at the end of those spears was the seed of the gospel to their very killers. Their blood was shed, but it became the instrument, their very blood, by which a culture of bloodshed became a culture of life. Nate Saint's killer is now a grandfather in a culture where at one time a man was long-lived, considered to be of long life if he saw 30 years. And unwanted children were slaughtered in their infancy. 
I mentioned the, the movie, maybe you saw it. But did you know that before that movie was made about the Waldani, the Waldani were first consulted and asked permission, and initially they said no. It was only after it was explained to them and told to the Waldani how bloody and how violent America was that they agreed that their message needed to be heard in America. Christians' hearts must be changed and knees must be bowed to Christ. His law, the law he proclaimed in awe and majesty on Mount Sinai, says you shall not murder. But before it says that, first it says you shall have no other gods before me. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the real issue. That's the prior issue. Who's on the throne? Answer that question. Settle that matter of the first commandment and all the others fall in line behind it. And that is where your responsibility and mine is found. You must proclaim the king of kings to the nations. You must. You must bring the news to your neighbors and to your friends and family that though we've sinned against this king who is God, though we have made ourselves gods before him, yet there is forgiveness with him. There is love to be found in him beyond all measure. The sort of love we sang about this morning earlier, love beyond telling for all who will turn and as the psalmist says it, kiss the son, giving him rightful place on the throne. You must tell them this. You must tell them. It's not enough, dear Christians, for you to wag your head and your finger at the world, for you to gripe and moan about what's going on in Washington or in Frankfurt, even attending pro-life rallies and demonstrations, your duty's not done in those things. Your duty is to proclaim Christ. Your duty is defined by the Great Commission. That's your duty. It is in proclaiming the true king and calling for allegiance to him. Or that is where the Christian fulfills his calling or hers to be witnesses. Let them know that mother considering abortion, let her know that the same one who said you shall not murder also said come unto me. All who are weary laden, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That, by the way, is the message they hear when they walk into the CareNet Pregnancy Center of Owensboro. That is why that ministry, your ministry at Ninth and Triplet, exists. And self-consciously so. Not to wag fingers or carry signs, but to proclaim Christ to a dying people and bring them, by God's grace, to life.
Let them know that the same God who says that the soul that sins it shall die also said that all who come to him he will never drive away. Let the nation hear that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is new life, there is the truest blessedness, the highest happiness to be found anywhere when God sits on the throne. Let them know that the law of God, the very first commandment, as a matter of fact, that we should have no other gods before him, far from being a burden, is in fact a delight. It is life. Amen.